Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. And we are doing a series on the future of faith or the future of religion. And I have just the person for us today. His name is Harvey Cox. He's the Hollis Research Professor of Divinity at Harvard, where he began teaching in 1965. His research and teaching interests focus on the interaction of religion, culture, and politics. Among the issues he explores are urbanization, theological developments in world Christianity, Jewish-Christian relations, and current spiritual movements in the global setting, particularly Pentecostalism. He's a prolific author. His most recent book, The Future of Faith, uh, was published in 2009. His Secular City, published in 1965, became an international bestseller and was selected by the University of Marburg as one of the most influential books of Protestant theology in the 20th century. His other books include When Jesus Came to Harvard, Making Moral Decisions Today, Liberation Theology and the Future of World Christianity, Fire from Heaven, The Rise of Pentecostal Spirituality, and The Reshaping of Religion in the 21st Century. He's also published a commentary, uh, Lamentations and the Song of Songs, a theological commentary on the Bible. Welcome, Professor Cox, to Religion for Life. Oh, thanks for having me, John. On, on the jacket of your book, uh, The Future of Faith, it said it's, uh, that its publication in, in 2009 would coincide with your retirement, but it doesn't sound like you've done too much retiring. I did a little retiring. I didn't like it that much. So I'm uh, teaching now not as much as I was. Uh, a research professor, as you mentioned, identified me, uh, is invited to teach whenever he or she uh, wants to do it. So I taught this past semester, uh, one course, and I will probably continue to do that uh, uh, one or two courses a year. I enjoy that along with the other things that I do, including writing. Well, it is an honor to speak with you. I remember reading you when I was in seminary 20 years ago and and reading you since then, enjoying uh, When Jesus Came to Harvard and the Future of Faith. Uh, The Future of Faith is the title of my series of programs here. Uh, I'm speaking with a number of thinkers about uh, where religion is headed. And as as I understand you from, from reading your work, we're moving from an age of belief to an age of spirit or an age of faith. Uh, Can you give me what's the difference between belief and faith? Yeah, well, uh, let me take a step back and, right. and, and, uh, and say something about the uh, title of that book, The Future of Faith. When I started teaching, which was now some decades ago, uh, the common prediction by a lot of well-informed people was that religion was very much in decline globally, uh, that even if it uh, persisted in, in here and there in small enclaves, family traditions and so on, uh, we'd come to the end of uh, the period in which religion would have any influence on the public sphere, on culture, on politics, and, and so on. This was very widely uh, believed. Now, that was, uh, what, 40-some years ago, 40, 50 years ago, and that surely has not happened. It has not happened. What we've seen is a kind of a recrudescence, a renaissance, revival if you will, of uh, religious uh, practices and movements all over the world. 
uh, and this is sometimes good news, sometimes bad news, but it certainly religion certainly has not disappeared. So I thought it was time to look at uh, the future of religion in general and Christianity in particular, uh, more informed now by what's what's happening than the kind of speculation of 40 years ago. So that's why I, I undertook to write this book. And as I thought about it and thought about where we are now in the whole trajectory of Christian history the last 2,000 years, uh, it seemed to me that we are entering and have been entering for the last uh, indefinite period a third phase in the long history of Christianity. So let me explain for just for a moment what that is. Christianity started out in the first three centuries as what I call a movement of faith. There were no uniform creeds. There was no single uh, hierarchy. There were a scattering of congregations all around the Mediterranean basin. And Christianity was growing very, very vigorously, even though it was under persecution at certain points. Then there was this rather uh, catastrophic turn in the early 300s when Constantine made Christianity, not only made it uh, official and legal, but made it the ideology of his empire and insisted that there be a uniform creed. That was when he brought the bishops together at Nicaea and uh, told them, you know, you come up with a creed, everybody has to adhere to it, and it will be enforced by imperial power. So what you had then was a kind of imperialization of uh, Christianity, and that went on for, for, for centuries. And what happened was, instead of being a movement of those who sought to follow Jesus, as the earliest Christians had, uh, the, the test for for many centuries of whether you were a Christian or not was whether you adhered to a creed. Now, mm-hmm. it wasn't just the Nicene Creed. There had to be more creeds after that, clarifying the previous creeds and at the Reformation. There were a number of different creeds. Uh, they were all supposed to unify people, but they didn't. Creeds never unify people. They always divide them, because mm-hmm. they're always somebody on the outside. Then, beginning, I think, with certain movements uh, in the late medieval period and in the Reformation, and then blossoming in our in the last in our in our time, uh, last hundred years or so, there's a movement away from. defining Christianity creedally and back to understanding Christianity as a way of life which is uh, uh, based on our belief that in Jesus we have a picture not only of who God is but of who we are supposed to try to be Uh, the following of Jesus, the imitatio Christi has come back and at the same time a reaffirmation of the reality of uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which was uh, pretty well overlooked for many, many centuries. It was it was uh, repeated in the creeds and so on, but not really very uh, uh, widely practiced or thought about or uh, or anything like that. Uh, so I decided to call this third phase after the initial phase in the of the age of faith and the age of belief the age of the spirit, 
And I know that's a risky uh, title, perhaps, but still, I do think it describes a lot of what is happening now around the world and world Christianity also here in the United States. Hence uh, that, uh, that title. Uh, because uh, people uh, you're discovering are, are less interested in um, things that they're supposed to believe. It's it's kind of like things they kind of have to do to be in the religious club, but really from yeah. practical matters, that isn't what they what interests them or inspires them. Yeah, that's true. It's it's. Um, uh, I think you know them, and I know them. People who say, "Oh yes, I know the creed." We sometimes say the creed in church, but uh, I, I have my doubts about elements in it. And furthermore, I really don't think that's at the heart of what it means to be a, a Christian. Uh, and some of the most thoughtful people who are writing and, th- and thinking about this now uh, agree. You know, the so-called red-letter Christians among uh, evangelicals who, who go back to those the words of Jesus that are sometimes some some versions of the Bible are uh, are printed in red. Or the whole idea that uh, to be a Christian is to try your best to be a follower among the followers of Jesus. Try to do now what he was try- doing then, that is trying to advance the, the uh, kingdom of God. Uh, I think this is the, uh, uh, this is the flavor of the, of the most lively currents in, current, in Christianity today. And uh, in your book, uh, you do a, uh, a excellent uh, chapter and a very informative regarding uh, the relationship between those early followers of Jesus and empire of their time. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, do, you, do you see uh, parallels in that today? Uh, well, yeah. Uh, what Constantine did was an, un- an unfriendly takeover, if you will. Mm-hmm. He was not a particularly pious Christian, but he saw this movement growing. He knew that uh, a, an empire needs some kind of religious cement to hold it together, and so he made that move. But it was a uh, whatever it may have done for the empire, which wasn't very much because the Roman Empire didn't last that much longer. Uh, it certainly was a very unhealthy uh, turn of events for Christianity because Christianity then took on some of the qualities of the empire, you know, with ruling elites uh, telling the, the underlings what to do. Uh, it, it became a kind of uh, imperially uh, profiled or shaped religion uh, and uh, continued to be so and still has those qualities in, in many instances, which uh, it didn't have early on when it was a collection of, of uh, equals, uh, fellowships of equals, as my colleague Elizabeth Schisler Fiorenza puts it. That's, that was the nature of those early, for, for the first 300 years. They didn't even have buildings. They met in each other's homes. Um, so what we have now is a, a, a re, uh, you might say, a recapturing of some of the most spirited and energetic elements of the earliest years of Christianity, uh, but it's, the difference is that instead of uh, happening just in the Mediterranean basin, it's going on all around the world. I mean, and as you know, some of the fastest growth and, the, and some of the most uh, impressive vigor in Christianity today is in what we used to call the third world. In Latin America, and especially in Africa, and increasingly now in mainland China, 
China has the, one of the fastest growing Christian communities anywhere in the world. Uh, so the, the map is changing, and the kind of Christianity that we see uh, happening there bears a lot of similarities to that earliest phase before Constantine. Uh, the temptation, of course, still is to mix religion and empire, and people try to do that, I think always to the detriment of, uh, of religion. I think we should watch out for that, especially in this country, <laughs> that uh, we don't, um, we don't uh, allow some kind of Christian uh, licensing for American imperial uh, designs. But it's not, we're not the only ones. I mean, that, that has happened in other uh, empires as well. And uh, we have to be aware of that. Be cautious. If you're joining, just joining us, this is Religion for Life. Uh, I'm John Sheck, and my guest is Professor Harvey Cox at uh, Harvard uh, University and Harvard Divinity School. Uh, he's the author of the 2009 book, The Future of Faith, and of course the uh, the famous uh, Secular City in 1965, also Liberation Theology and the Future of World Christianity. And we're just talking a little bit about empire, you know, as the football season uh, has been winding down. I was watching a few of the games, and I noticed a commercial for the Navy uh, more than once had a vision of the globe and satellites and uh, aircraft carriers, and the phrase I thought was theological. It said, the U.S. Navy, a global force for good. And I thought that, um, I'm wondering, uh, put you on the spot a little bit here, but it would seem to me that the earliest Christianity might have resisted uh, an imperial uh, sort of statement like that. Well, uh, remember, the earliest Christianity was under the gun, Uh I guess at that point, under the sword and the spear. Uh, the, the, uh, Jesus himself was uh, executed under the power of Rome uh, by a means of execution that was reserved in those days for people found to be a danger to the Roman Empire, crucifixion. It was not a Jewish form of execution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was executed by the, by the Roman legions. And for the next couple hundred years, Christian, Christians were pursued, uh, uh, tortured, killed, uh, and by by the forces of the empire, in part because the empire had its own religion, it was its own religion which was centered on itself, on its emperor, on its power, on its sweep uh, around the end, the known world at the time, and Christians just wouldn't buy into that, and therefore uh, were were persecuted until Constantine made this very cunning move of sort of. Uh, 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 taking uh, uh, entering into an agreement by which he would uh, legitimate and legalize Christianity if the, if Christianity would become the imperial uh, ideology uh, it was a it was a bad deal I think for for at least for the for the Christian side and I think we have to avoid uh, as much as we can uh, becoming uh, the the uh, cement of, uh, of an empire or the imperial stream of an empire. We have to, it, it's, it's foreign to Christianity. Whenever we get involved with it, uh, something is lost. I think Dominic Crossan said something like, if uh, Jesus was crucified by empire, what does it mean to follow Jesus today? <laughs> he has a wonderful way of putting things like that. I'm, I'm, I'm a great admirer, also a good friend of Dominic Crossan's. He's he has, a, he has a gift for that sort of friend, and he knows more than perhaps anybody walking the earth today about exactly who Jesus was and what he did and what he was trying to do. 
during his historical lifetime. So I put a lot of credence in that. Harvey Cox, my guest on Religion for Life, and you've done a lot of work on uh, uh, exploring liberation theology, and it seemed to be so strong, liberation theology, Gustavo Gutierrez and whatnot in the 1970s and 80s, and then it, it appeared to have almost dropped out of sight. Where do you see liberation theology flourishing now? Yeah, well, a, a couple things happened. One, one was that the papal leadership during that period was not at all happy with liberation theology, or at least with the with the social form that liberation theology was taking, the the so-called base communities movement in Latin America, which some people in Rome saw as a kind of an alternative to the hierarchical church. And so they cracked down pretty heavily, as you may recall, on some of the mm-hmm. liberation theologians. In fact, I, I wrote a whole little book one time about Leonardo Buff, who was one of the leading uh, liberation theologians who was silenced uh, by Rome, uh, so that that didn't that, that was a discouraging blow. Uh, then, uh, of course, however, some of the some of the most uh, visible oppressive governments changed in Latin America. So the the visible target uh, of liberation theology there was not quite as clear. However, many of the people who who were involved in that movement, especially as laymen, got into uh, government and journalism and and uh, education. So the movement, even though it doesn't have the kind of uh, theological uh, or clerical leadership of the stature of Gustavo Gutierrez and some others, is still uh, is still vibrant in many places. Uh, two or three years ago, I was at a big big conference in Rio de Janeiro of young Catholic Protestant. Pentecostal people who were kind of picking up the torch and passing it on. There were 500 of them there, and they were determined that that the liberation theology's uh, energy was was going to be uh, passed on. Not, however, so much as a, uh, a, a religious movement as such, but in the uh, public sectors, which is happening there. Now, the other thing that happened, John, was of course that people all around the world, in Korea in Africa, and other places, picked up on some of the main elements in liberation theology. And it, uh, it, the genie escaped from the bottle of, mm-hmm. of where it was born in Latin America. And it, it's still uh, very influential in many places. Harvey Cox, my guest on Religion for Life, talking about uh, the future of faith, uh, just talking about liberation theology, and you mentioned uh, Pentecostal uh, Pentecostalism, and, I, and I, I'm kind of wondering about this. I, I have this um, this question in my head. Is Pentecostalism helpful in terms of economic and social justice, or has it been uh, focused on otherworldly concerns and such, and as such serve uh, corporate interests in the global South? Well, the answer, of course, is a little, is a little both. Uh, Pentecostalism is anything but a centralized movement, and there are all kinds of wings and divisions and uh, flavors of Pentecostalism. It's a very large, globally extensive movement. Some people estimate that 500 million people are involved in Pentecostal congregations and movements, but it it plays a lot of different roles. I think one of the most significant uh, uh, movements within the Pentecostal movement in, in uh, at, at large now, is a, uh, as a, an awakened 
sense of uh, social justice, social responsibility, social ministries. Uh, I see this especially among younger uh, pastors and lay people in Pentecostal congregations, and it's much more evident in uh, in uh, the southern world, in South America, Africa, uh, Korea, uh, than it is here. But here in the United States, it's evident in the in the uh, ethnic uh, uh, Pentecostal communities, especially among uh, Latin Americans here in the United States. Uh, so you have that. You you also have uh, other tendencies which are counter to that within Pentecostalism. And since there's no centralized authority to crack down or enforce a particular line, either theological or social, uh, you're going to see numerable, uh, numerous tendencies, innumerable tendencies uh, mm-hmm. to continue there. It won't, it won't be possible to characterize it in a single uh, description. So it uh, it does have uh, both both effects. Sometimes it's yeah, uh, oh, yeah. it keeps people from liberation in some respects, and then and in other cases it helps empower them. Yeah, yes, it does both. I want, to, I want to take a, a moment and just talk on kind of theology uh, with you for a second, uh, the future of faith or the future of religion. And I'm wondering about the future of theology. I, I keep wondering if Secular City was, 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 was on. It was just a little early. I, I don't know. I'm thinking um, what I'm thinking about is uh, uh, Bishop Spong saying that uh, uh, in our modern understanding of the universe, supernatural theism has, 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 is going away. Uh, God is out of work and homeless. Um, there's a renewed atheist movement. And, and so this brings up the question of, of God, and since I have a world-renowned theologian on my program, I do have to ask you, what is God, or more precisely, what does God do? Yeah, so you saved that question for last, huh, right? <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, the, the statement that God, God is out of work or in exile or something is an old, old tradition that goes back uh, uh, to even before Christianity, when, when the Jews went into exile, that God also was in exile, that God was uh, with those who are scattered and suffering and in exile and in pain. Uh, and uh, that is introducing a very, very sharp question mark against the kind of monarchical uh, understanding of a God who is uh, omnipotent, who can do anything and rules from the heavens. And I think what we're seeing now as we, we, we constantly rethink what we mean by this word God, mm-hmm. but I think it's becoming more and more informed now by a recognition that God in the Christian view, especially if the incarnation is central to our understanding, which it is, at least for me, is that God is present. God is Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, and in, in our suffering, in our hopes, in our aspirations, in our joys, uh, highly present as, as one who is, uh, accompanies us through our, through our lives, and not as the force that intervenes to, to uh, uh, rescue us from our own mistakes and misdoings, uh, not as a severe judge who's waiting up there to, to uh, clamp us in irons if we do something wrong, but as one who, uh, who has chosen, uh, as we know from the life and, and death of Jesus, 
to be with us. And, and therefore, I find that a much more, much more credible and acceptable understanding I can, uh, of God than some of the uh, more uh, exalted uh, definitions. I think part of the uh, atheist wave, although I don't think it's quite as powerful as some people make it out to be, uh, has been an objection to this old picture of the omniscient and omnipotent God, mm-hmm. uh, which was never really coherent with, with a Christian view of the nature of God anyway. So maybe they've done us a bit of a service. Yeah, I, yeah, that, that could very well be. You know, I really actually I did. I had one more question for you, but I think it's related. Uh, back to the secular city uh, that you wrote in 1965, there's a sentence there near the end that jumped out at me. Uh, you wrote, God wants man not to be interested in him, but in his fellow man. And, and, uh, and I thought about that. That's, is it, uh, I wonder, Professor Cox, if that sentence articulates perhaps the future of faith. If you want to see God uh, to have some spiritual experience, then, uh, then do justice. Yeah, I think it does. As a matter of fact, I hadn't, re- hadn't remembered that I wrote that sentence. It's not a bad sentence. I'm glad you quoted it. But that certainly isn't that certainly the message of Jesus. Uh huh. Look at all Jesus' parables. Uh, it's about is about uh, concern for your the, the the person who's been knocked into the ditch, uh, and many many other instances of of what it means. He doesn't focus. Uh, in, in the parables, on uh, on uh, God doesn't even mention God very much. He asks us to look around us, to look at the neighbor, to look at the community, and to discover the presence of God there. I think that's the essence of it. Uh, Doctor uh, Harvey Cox has been my guest on Religion for Life. I just have a few seconds left, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, your current project? Well, yeah, now that you mentioned Secular City, uh, uh, the Princeton University Press is bringing out a, uh, a new edition, the <laughs> 48th anniversary. Oh, wow. <laughs> 48th oh, good anniversary for you. of Secular City. It'll be out this fall, and the, most, the thing that I'm writing at this very moment uh, is, the, is an extended introduction to that. Uh, revi- it's not a revised version. It's a new, ver- it's a new edition of the original. But I've written a, uh, a fairly long introduction, sort of bringing the whole question up to date. And that'll be, that'll be around in a few more months. Well, I look forward to that then. Dr. Harvey Cox, thank you. It's been an honor to have you on Religion for Life. Thank you for your work and for taking time to be with me today. Okay, John. Thank you. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find information about our congregation at fpcelizabethton.org. Information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts, information about our guests, upcoming shows, articles, and wonderful things can be found at religionforlife.com. That is religionforlife.com. And I do hope that you'll like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and listen to us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. Be well.